but clearly the longest narrative, the longest story in the book of Genesis in this series as we've gone through this book. And in essence, Moses takes all this time to tell us, believe it or not, a love story, which is very appropriate considering men that it's Valentine's week. Notice I did not say Valentine's day. I said Valentine's week. And ladies, you can always tell the men who wait to the last minute. Go around 10 p.m. on a Thursday night, and they're roaming the aisles of Circle K looking desperately around. And, and men, all I have to say is, don't be Circle K guy. Don't, don't be that guy. But couples, as seriously as you are shopping and thinking about your loved one or your daughters or who at moms, think about all of the random things, think about this, that had to happen. I say random in quotation marks in order for the two of you to be together, to meet, to marry, to be in relationship. I think about my, my granddad is with the Lord now. In the 1930s, grew up in the Great Depression in a small town in Middle Tennessee, and his dad owned a barber shop. But his dad died prematurely, and so my grandfather had to hitchhike his way across the rural grounds of Tennessee, make it to the big city, hitchhiked to Chattanooga where he got a a job at a department store, Woolworths, um, I think it might have been, known for its malted milk balls and mechanical horse rides. I do remember that growing up. And he met a young lady working at the candy counter, which of course was my grandmother. And before he went off to war, married her, and he was gone four years fighting his way across North Africa, Sicily, up the boot of Italy. And just to think about the seemingly thousands of random events and circumstances that had to conspire and come together for me to be even standing here today. And and, and let's face it, all of us have those stories in our past, in our background, whether it's through marriages or relationships or where our parents came from or how we even ended up in Tallahassee to begin with. And it's much the same thing we see here with Isaac and Rebecca. This is a love story. But it's so much more than that. See, it's a love story that Moses takes 67 verses to tell us because he wants to teach us something about the providence of God. Now, when I say the word providence, that's one of those highfalutin preacher theological words. And you may say, Pastor Paul, I'm just a a simple man from North Florida, and to which I want to say, I'm just a simple man from East Tennessee. So we're equal, right? But what do we mean by God's providence? Here's what the Shorter Catechism says. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preservation and control of all his creatures and all their actions. Now here's here's a quote from Roland Ward, which kind of expounds on this a little bit. This is super important. He says, God not only made the world's, but continues to maintain them. Otherwise, they could not continue to exist. It is in God that all things live and move and have their being, Acts 17 tells us. God governs everything. And because he is all-powerful, his plan is fulfilled. Not even a sparrow can die without his will. And when we look through the Bible, the Bible is just chock full 
of confirmation of that reality, that God is sovereign. He is in control in each and everything. He does all his holy will. Ephesians 1 tells us this. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, listen, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Think about all things that are going on in your life in your house, in your relationships, in your jobs, and just think about how little control sometimes you feel like you have over them. Well, God not only has control over your stuff, he's got control over my stuff and our stuff and the world's stuff. So to say that we affirm the providence of God, that this passage teaches the providence of God, is to confirm no small thing. Now, let me just differentiate here for a second because you may be asking, well, Pastor Paul, t- tell, help me understand, what is the difference like in the providence of God and then something like miracles? Miracles would be this idea that God is working supernaturally outside the normal flow of human events, of nature, of observable laws. Things like Lazarus rising from the dead, not your, not your typical thing happening in human history, the parting of the Red Sea. These would, would be what we would call supernatural miracles. Providence, though, is God working supernaturally through the normative flow of life and circumstances. Things that we may not even discern. It's almost as if it's the air that we breathe. We, we may think God is distant doing his thing, but he's not. He's not a, we're not deists. God is actively intervening, sovereignly guiding and controlling everything around us. So it would be a mistake to say that miracles are supernatural, but providence is not. Not true at all. See, both miracles and providence are supernatural. The fact that you did not kill each other in your minivan on the way over here this morning is an act of God's providence, right? Where you live, where you play, who you marry, how you got here, all of this is part of God's holy, wise, powerful control. But we usually don't think about it, do we? We just take it for granted. Now let me tell you where we're going this morning. Moses doesn't want us to take it for granted. There's a reason he spends this much time on this story. And we're going to look at three characters in this narrative. Three characters. We're talking about Abraham. We're going to talk about the servant, and we're going to talk about Rebecca. And what we are going to endeavor to see is how their firm conviction and belief in the providence of God absolutely transformed their lives, guided their decisions. And my prayer for us this morning is that as our awareness and understanding of the providence of God deepens and expands, that we too will be transformed and changed as well. So let's pray as we dive into God's word. Lord Jesus, we just go about our business so often just assuming that we have ultimate control, assuming that we are masters of our own fate, assuming that we're sort of living independently, autonomously. But Lord, that is a fiction. Lord, and that that sort of theology, that sort of belief can be deadly. And Lord, we want to have our hearts and minds and eyes opened, awakened this morning to the nature of your providence and how the idea that you are sovereign over everything. 
can literally transform and change the way we walk through life before you. So, Lord, do this, we pray. We ask in your son's name. Amen. All right, let's look at Abraham first. Abraham's faith in God's providence. Verse 1, it tells us that Abraham is old. He's well advanced in years. Now, the context here from chapter 23 is that Sarah has died. Now, we, we moved past that chapter this morning. We're going to come back to it next week because we're going to look at the deaths of Abraham and Sarah together and talk about what it means to die in faith. But now we just need to know that Isaac is probably about 37 years old. Ladies, he was very eligible. Do you know what I mean? I mean, he had the money, he had the camels, he had the supplies, he was waiting in the wings, but it was time to find a wife. Now, why, why was there such an urgency around this on the part of, of Abraham? Didn't he trust God? Well, of course he did, but God had made a promise. And, it's gonna, and, and his promise was that Abraham's line that was ultimately going to bless the nations. It's why we're here. We're the fulfillment of it. It was going to happen through the line of Isaac. That's where the promise was going to take place. And so obviously, Isaac was going to need a wife, someone to have a family with to propagate the line. And so Abraham recruits his servant, his loyal servant, and he's going to send him away 400 miles. And he sends him with two sets of instructions. Okay, very clear. Two sets of instructions, and here they are. Number one, under no circumstances, he tells his servant, is my son to marry a gator. I mean, a Canaanite, okay? <laughs> they are, that wasn't even in the notes. That just came naturally. But anyway, and under no circumstances are, to, are you to intermarry. Are, is she to marry a Canaanite? They are outside the covenant, she, my son, is to marry someone within the covenant family, someone who's a part of my extended family. See, the Canaanites don't worship me. I mean, don't worship the Lord. They, 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 they're destined for destruction. They're a pagan nation. They'll turn the heart of my son away from the living God. They don't worship the living God. They worship stones and rocks and idols. So, so by all means, my son must marry someone within the covenant line. The second thing he says, and under no circumstances at all is my son to ever go back to Mesopotamia, which was 400 miles away. That's Abraham's hometown. See, God's, Abraham said, you know, God has promised this land and this line, and, and I would rather you come back empty-handed than to send my son there. And this idea here is that what we're, what we're seeing is that God is telling Abraham, and Abraham is telling his servant, that God's people have to be set apart. They have to be holy. They have to be different. See, Abraham's faith in God's providence, and now this is interesting, and we're going to see both of these things in this passage. Abraham's faith in God's providence, on one hand, is going to propel him to wait. We want to look at that. And then on the other hand, it's going to propel him towards action. And, and, and we're going to make the case that you and I are both faced with those kinds of decisions, either to wait or to act every day. And ultimately, if we don't have a faith in the providence of God, we're not going to honor God in the way that we are acting. So let's look at this idea of waiting first. Isaac is 37 years old. And do you realize how easy it would have been for Abraham to have Isaac to marry a Canaanite. Do you realize how convenient that would have been? 
undoubtedly it would have been a much cheaper venture, right? It, it would have given Abraham an instant ticket into the inner circle of the place he lived. Remember, for all of his days, Abraham was a stranger. He was a sojourner. He, he was somebody that looked, people looked at a little oddly, weirdly. He, you know, they worshiped gods that you could see, taste, and touch and put your hands on. He worshiped this invisible God named Yahweh. And, and we always see that, that Abraham was a bit out of step, was he not? With the culture and the people around him. How, how easy then would it have been for Abraham to say, you know what? It's just so much easier, a matter of convenience. I'm not going to wait on the Lord on this. I'm going to do what's expedient, what's convenient, what's easy. And as we know, when it comes to relationships, particularly marriage, not waiting on the Lord can have very dire consequences. That's why the scriptures, Old and New Testament, are replete with the instructions that if we, if you are a Christian, we as Christians are to marry in the Lord. See, the, the, the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, lives within you. And, and, to, and to join with someone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ is to put you at completely different places when it, terms of, when it comes to worldview when it comes to purpose, when it comes to vision. The Christian is thinking about, how do I please the Lord? How do I leverage my life? How, how do I get on mission for him? And to be put together with someone who doesn't share that worldview is ultimately detrimental to our walk. And so here's just a word, just a word. And this is not the main point of this passage, but just a word. If you are single, if you are a student, if you are someone who... Uh, aspires to, to, to marry one day, not only aspire to marry in the Lord, but aspire to date in the Lord. Because in our culture, at least, we don't have arranged marriages anymore like, like Rebecca and Isaac. Typically, you date before you get married. That, that's the typical order. And the idea is we want to be preparing ourselves, preparing our children, preparing our students, giving them a vision for what it means to, to marry, to wed in the Lord, and to get their lives on a trajectory. And so, I mean, parents, we know this is the cry of our heart, isn't it? This is what we pray. This is what we hope for. And we have good reason to affirm that from the example of Abraham in this passage. So, so for 37 years, understand, Abraham waited because he trusted the Lord, that the Lord would bring about those circumstances and times when it would be time to seek a bride for Isaac. And when he did, though, he is compelled towards action. Now, let me say this. There were circumstances which compelled Abraham towards this. He was getting old. He's nearing the end of his life. Isaac's mother is dead. It's time to think seriously about propagating the line, and Abraham is compelled to send out his servant. Now listen, action and faith are not antithetical. See, it's, it's just because God had promised Abraham that he would bless his line through Isaac didn't mean that this was going to empower Abraham towards passivity, right? Because he said, I'm going to, I'm going to, Sarah is going to conceive supernaturally, 
But she is going to conceive, you see where I'm going with this, right? The old-fashioned way. Remember we talked about this? Like what God was asking Abraham to do and Sarah was to actually engage sexually, trusting in the providence of God. Well, well, the same thing is happening here. He is saying, I want my son to marry someone who is not a Canaanite, someone who is part of the covenant family, but they're 400 miles away. In other words, this wasn't a matter of, Isaac, just go sit in your tent and somehow by osmosis, right, you're going to marry someone a part of the covenant line. He said, no, no, no. That's not the way it works. I'm going to go out in faith and act in faith, not because I don't trust the Lord, but because I do. But because I do. See, the opposite of action The opposite of ambition, understand something, is not humility. See, the opposite of action and ambition is passivity. And so many times what keeps us from moving forward boldly into the breach, stepping into something out of out of the, the desire to achieve something, sometimes the thing that's hindering us is not faith. We can hide behind faith and just say, oh, I'm waiting on God. I'm, I'm, I'm being patient here. I'm not acting. But here we see that these things are not in opposition. See, we have to think about it, and everybody in here is faced with something in their life, either right now or soon to be or, or, or recently in the past, where you are faced with this exactly this, this same kind of decision. You're scared. You're fearful. You, you, you don't want to step into that place. God has been providentially arranging these things in your life, and he is compelling you towards urgency. He is compelling you towards action. Let me ask you this question. What is that for you? What's keeping you from just going there? See, see Abraham was empowered by his implicit trust in the providence of God. God, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to step out in faith. I'm going to send my servant. And I'm just going to trust that you're going to have to take care of the rest. Guys, this is applicable in so many ways. Um, This is applicable in evangelism. Isn't it interesting You know what the greatest predictor is about whether a church is growing through new converts or not? I know this is going to be shocking. Are people actually sharing their faith, right? And so often we are couched in fear. We, we, you know, how will they hear unless we tell them? Paul makes that exceedingly clear. That's not antithetical. That's not opposite to trusting and knowing in God's providence, we go forward aggressively, boldly, like Abraham, like his servant, because we do trust in the providence of God. And some guys, let's be honest, it's hard to know the difference sometimes. God, when are you calling me to wait? God, when are you calling me to act? But what we see with Abraham, he knew the difference. We know the difference when we trust and have faith in God's care and providential care for us. So that's Abraham. Number two, let's look at the servant. Now it tells us that 
And verse 12, Abraham's servant takes off with an impressive entourage. Remember, camels were not very common. Camels were the lifestyle of the rich and famous. He took 10 of these camels. And if the servant of the master has 10 camels, you know how many camels the master has. And so this is an impressive entourage. It's a bridal price. It's, going, it's meant to be an enticement, a gift to whoever this woman was that God was going to lead the servant to. And what's interesting in verse 12, as the servant goes out, what he is doing, it says that he is praying. In fact, it says, Lord, give me success. Now, literally in the Hebrew, what that means is, Lord, make happen before me. That's literally what it means. Lord, make happen for me. Now, this is, this is interesting. Didn't know this until I studied this this week. This is the first time in the Bible that prayer for specific guidance is ever mentioned. This is the first time in the Bible that, that someone is praying for specific guidance. Now, as this servant is praying, let's be honest. This is a bizarre, is it not? Seemingly bizarre set of criteria and conditions. So let's look back at verse 13. Listen to what the servant prays. He says, behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. Now this is what he's praying as he's coming up on the spring of water, right? Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now here's this request. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now, let's be honest, that seems like a bizarre set of criteria conditions, right? And, and by the way, people have done all kinds of crazy things with this verse. You know, this is talking about a fleece, or this is a sort of set of arbitrary conditions. Is, or, or, Pastor Paul, is this not like some kind of testing of God? Like, how would we even apply this? You know, Lord, I'm at, I'm at Publix, right? And, and whosoever should show up at the produce aisle, right? Or that, that is the one. Is that, is that what this passage is teaching? Because what I want to show you is that this is not arbitrary at all. In fact, the conditions or the things that this servant is praying are reflective of his deeply held belief in God's providential care. So let's unpack this for a minute. First, the servant goes to the local watering hole. Okay, Now, why is that? It's not complicated. That's where the women are, right? Okay, This is Applebee's. This is Club Publix. You get what I'm saying, right? That's where the women are. They would come later in the day. They would water their camels. It was part of the the traditional cultural expectations. If you want to meet someone, that's where you go. But second, this request or this idea that, God, I want this woman not just to offer me water. I want her to offer my camels water. This is very revealing. When you think about this for a second, typically a camel would drink about 25 gallons of water when thirsty. There's 10 gallons. You get where we're going? The typical watering jar that a woman would carry would be about three gallons, which means undoubtedly the expectation is that anyone watering this kind of group of camels would be going down into that watering hole 70, 80 times. It would have taken an hour and a half 
two hours. And it says in verse 21, and isn't this just like a man? The whole time he's doing that, what does it say? He's just sitting there, right? He's waiting. He's gazing. He's evaluating. He's channel surfing. Whatever is happening. No, no, no. In actuality, he's, he's, he's actually doing something very important here. See, what seems to us an arbitrary set of of conditions he's asking God to fulfill is is not that at all. See, the nature of this man's request reflected his heart of faith. Because this sign, this condition he asked of God, any woman who would do this undoubtedly would be somewhat of incredibly high character. This is a Proverbs 31 kind of woman. This is a woman who's going to be kind. This is a woman who's going to be hospitable. This is going to be a woman who's hardworking. This is going to be a woman who's not easily discouraged. This is going to be a woman who is supremely faithful. In other words, all qualities that Abraham and the servant would seek out for the wife of Isaac. You see what's happening there? This is our equivalent as parents saying, Lord Jesus, guide and direct my, my, my children to the right church, to the right campus ministry. Let them meet a godly man, a godly woman. Lord, turn their hearts. Let them show up on the first day of class and there that person be, right? Don't we pray those kind of things? We're not testing God. We're pouring out our cares before God. And that's what this servant is doing. He's asking God to show. And, and, and one of the things that we want to get from this is that a firm belief, a trust in God's providence, invariably will propel us towards prayer. Show me a person who doesn't pray. I will show you someone who doesn't think much of the providence of God. You show me someone who has a firm conviction in the providence of God. I will show you a praying person. Now, let me show you where we see this in the text. In verse 15, he's praying this thing. He's, he's riding on his camel with his eyes open. He's coming up on the well. He's praying these things. And it literally says before he can get the words out of his mouth, before he had finished praying, here comes this woman. Now, what's going on here? It's almost as if God had anticipated him praying. It's almost as if God knew what was in his heart. It's almost as if God was sovereignly moving even before this man knew it. See, that's exactly what God was doing. See, prayer and this this firm conviction in God's providence, again, those are not in opposition. See, a lot of times we think in our human way of thinking and say, well, you know, if, if, if God is sovereign, Pastor Paul, if God really is providential, then there's no need for me to pray. Why would I pray if God's just already going to do it? Guys, that's a philosophical category. It's not a biblical one. See, the question is, if God isn't sovereign, why would you be praying at all? See, the the reason we pray is because God is sovereign, because he's providential, because we know that he sets it in his heart. Guys, praying is one of the primary means that God shows, reveals, and directs us in his providence. And so, 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 if God is really not in control, if God is really not providential, then why would we pray? If man is decisive, then, 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 then what's the point? But we don't believe that as Christians. 
We believe that God is sovereign. He's in control. And we know that when we pray to him, one, we're praying because God put it in our heart to pray to him. And God's using those prayers to accomplish his sovereign will. Now, I happen to know, I'm looking across the room this morning, I know for many of you, I know your stories, you are contemplating major life changes and decisions. Some of you do not like your job. Some of you do not like where you live. Somebody, some of you don't like the school you attend. Some of you are discontent with your circumstances in life. Some of you are trying to decide what school to go to next year. Some of you are, I mean, you're, there's just countless decisions before you. What's the most important thing that you can do? Now, this is going to sound like pastor speak, but I, I, I firmly believe this. The most important thing to do is not to talk to someone, although please talk to someone. The most important thing to do is not to get counsel, although please get counsel. The most important thing to do is not to share this with your community group, although please share it with your community group. Because undoubtedly, the most important thing you and I can do is to pray. Is to pray. You see, God doesn't cease to be providential when we don't pray. That's, see, it's not like God, does, God loses control of things. But prayer is the way God unites our hearts to his. Prayer is the way God opens our eyes and our sight to what he is doing. So often we miss the providential hand of God, the clear hand of God, and the movement of God because we are going to do what we're going to do when we want to do it how we want to do it. See, if we aren't praying, we aren't active participants in the providence of God. Our vision will be clouded. We won't be able to discern. The most important thing you can do, foundationally, unequivocally, is to pray. Yes, get people to pray with you. Yes, get people to pray for you. Yes, call out to God. This is what this servant has done. And when, as he prays, God opens his eyes to what God, this is, an, this, this is crazy, even before he's praying, I mean, how long did God have to move in Rebecca's heart to get her to come down to the well at that time? How, how, like, hours before. Here he is 400 miles away. He, he doesn't even know what to pray yet. But God's already moving in her heart. Guys, that's the way God's providence works. It's an amazing thing. But when God reveals to the servant that this, his hand is in fact on it, he becomes decisive. He becomes urgent. He, he, he wants to obey immediately. They're like, come, on, come sit down, have dinner. He's like, like, later, but I've got something to tell you. God has made it super clear. I'm going to be obedient to him right now. Well, why don't you stay 10 more days? No, no, I'm, I, I can't do it. God has made it clear to me right now. See, so often, last thing I'll say about the servant, we do it in reverse, right? We scurry, we hurry, we're impulsive, we make all sorts of decisions on the fly without consultation of God. Things are a mess, and then we try to anoint it with prayer afterwards. And God says, Don't, no, 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 no. Pray, I'll open your eyes, I'll show you when it's time to act, it'll be clear. As it was finally for Rebecca, let's look at her. It says that once the servant finds out what family she's from, 
And it's confirmed for God that this is, in fact, his will. She's that Proverbs 31 kind of woman. He gives this jewelry to Rebecca. Now, please understand something. This is not jewelry. As Dion Sanders would say, this is jewelry, right? This is $15,000 worth of jewelry in our day and time, right? And she comes out in her jewelry, and her brother Laban comes out. And, and by the way, this is a foreshadowing of what's to come um, later when we see the, 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 the scandalous behavior of Laban. What's the first thing Laban sets his eyes on? Oh, that jewelry, right? Oh, yes, brother, come in. We have a place for you, right? Come in. You can stay with us. Sit down for dinner. Mom, we struck it rich. You get what, where this is going. And so it says that the servant then comes in and recounts this story. That's the part we didn't read. He just kind of retells this whole account. And it's so obvious to everyone what God has done here. Look at verse 50. Even Laban and his family are like, well, it looks pretty clear, right? You know, what can we say against it one way or the other? It, I mean, it's... it's it seems providential, but I, here's what I want you to, to see is the, is the contrast here. I want you to see the way the servant responds to the clear providential hand of God and then the way Laban responds to the providential hand of God. Both of them saw it. It was clear to both of them. What does Laban say? Laban says delay. And, and, and we don't know for sure, but this probably is, is, a, is a scheme of Laban's. This idea that let's just wait, let her wait 10 days. Hopefully, in the meantime, she'll change her mind and we'll get to keep the dowry and everything, right? But what does the servant say? The servant says, no, 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 we have to leave tomorrow. God has made it clear. Let me ask you something. Where in your life has God made it just crystal clear? Absolutely clear something you've been praying about, something you've been hoping for, some, whatever. And, and, and through circumstance, wisdom, in accordance with his word, and now you are at that decision point. That's where the servant is. And he says, we have to go forward. And Laban says, let her decide. Just assuming, I think, that Rebecca's going to say, well, you know, I'm not going to go off with this stranger. Now listen to this. Of all the patriarchal characters in Genesis, I think maybe Rebecca is the one most overlooked. So you remember when Abraham left home from Mesopotamia, this same location, and made the journey, he did it with his wife. He did it with his entourage. He did it with his people. Rebecca gets to take one person, her nurse, her nanny. She knows no one. She will never see her family again. She's going to, a man, to, to marry a man she's never met in a place she's never been to embrace a life that she's never known. Yet, what does it tell us in verse 58? What does she say? I will go. Just extraordinary obedience. Extraordinary confidence. What gave Rebecca that confidence? She saw very clearly the providential hand of God. It was so self-evident. It was so obvious. It couldn't be denied by anyone. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to think back to those times in your life 
when God did something similar. Mira was uh, a junior in college the summer of 1989. I was in Newport Beach, California with Campus Crusade suffering for Jesus on the beach there. And, and I remember I got a letter from a friend. And this friend told me about another friend who was transferring to, to school where we went in Knoxville and to, to keep an eye out for this person. And, and I kind of noted it and tucked the letter away, kind of promptly forgot it. Then about two months later when I met Susan, my now wife, and, and we were talking one night, and, and you know when, when they say with, with, like in action movies, when they slow down the action and you see everything in a crystal clear way? It was just one of those nights. We started talking about our life goals and our ministries and what we wanted to do, and, and I'm just, and, and it's sort of all the planets are aligning, so to speak. And then I'm remembering, I'm, re, I'm realizing in the middle of this, the person that my friend wrote the letter about was her. Oh, I see, God, what you're doing. I, and it was that night I realized God is calling me to marry this person. Now, it took three years to convince her of that, okay? You get what I'm saying. But, but it was one of those moments. All of us have those moments. Don't we, do we not? Well, we can look back. Maybe it was when you were saved, when you were married, some major circumstance in your life. But there's one last providential act that we see here with Rebecca, and we'll share this and we're done. They're journeying back, 24 tells us, and she sees Isaac in the field. And it's, it's, it's to denote this idea that, that Isaac and her see each other at the same time. That, that's kind of, it's supposed to kind of increase the drama a little bit. Who is that? Who is that? Oh, that's my husband. It says that she got down and she covered herself, which is a, was a pledge of covenantal faithfulness to say, I'm going to be your bride because God had made himself clear. Because where this morning do you need to be reminded about the providential hand of God in your life? Where do you need to be reminded that nothing that has happened for you has been outside his will? Nothing that's happened to you has been outside his good for you. That doesn't make God the author of sin. What it simply means is that nothing has surprised him. Nothing has taken him off guard. There's nothing that's happened in your life that he is not actively using if you are in Christ to transform you and shape you and to change you into his image. You know, who else had to rely upon the providence of God? And that was Jesus. Jesus, his whole life, was being driven to a hill on Calvary in Jerusalem. And as the last hours of his life ticked away, and God, and God was orchestrating by his sovereign divine hand, the death of his own son, his son looked to his father and said, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. And then he says, but not my will, but yours. See, Philippians tells us that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but he trusted his father. He trusted his father's providential, sovereign plan. By going to that cross.
you are not here this morning by accident. You are not here, you are here this morning by the divine hand of providence. And if you don't know this Jesus, who submitted himself to the providence of God so that he could die for you and me on a cross, we would love to introduce you to him. We would love to talk and pray with you after this service. The church, lean and trust the providential, sovereign hand of God in your life. Let's pray.